0: So turn with me to John chapter 18. John 18. I'll begin reading in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, and so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, shall I not drink the cup? The Father has given me. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly in the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me, ask those who you heard, or who have heard me, what I said to them? They know what I said. And when Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you address the high priest? Jesus answered, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the record of our Savior's hours leading up to his crucifixion, days leading up to his resurrection. And I pray now that you would help us To the best of our ability, enter into the story, observe it, truly experience what Jesus is experiencing. Help us to not take for granted. The events that we'll look at today and in the coming weeks. May they sober us, encourage us, demand of us, cause us to weep, to rejoice, to feel and experience all that they're meant. For the purpose of them being recorded for us. And so, God, we pray your blessing now, Spirit work amongst us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Through the month of March, uh, we are going to focus attention on the final hours of Jesus. The hours and the events that are leading to the cross and culminating in the glorious resurrection of our Savior on Easter Sunday. With the help of some other faithful brothers, Uh, We're going to consider Jesus' betrayal, his trial, his abuse, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. And since we've been studying 1 John, I thought it appropriate that we would focus our attention on John's gospel uh, to carry us through this particular aspect and storyline. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at John 18, 19, and 20. And that is a commission for you to spend some time uh, meditating the month of March on these particular chapters and these particular events. And today, as you noted, we begin in John chapter 18. But before we do jump into this all-important study, there is an important note that I want to share with you. Chapters 13 through 17 are chapters that, that include for us the, the most extensive chunk of Jesus' teaching. It's what we call the upper room discourse, because beginning in chapter 13 is where Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room and they are celebrating the Passover together. And there is a large amount of teaching and there's a large amount of doctrine and and things that we learn and events that take place in that particular time frame. All of this happening, I believe, on that Thursday night that would lead into Good Friday and what we're going to be looking at that would happen probably sometime in the early morning hours of that Good Friday here in John chapter 18. I will give a little plug here at this point. Uh, Because uh, during the Passion Week leading up after our Palm Sunday celebration and uh, leading up to Easter Sunday, typically we've done in the past a Good Friday service. This year we're going to do a Holy Thursday service. And we're going to spend some time focusing on the events that take place in the upper room that night as they celebrate the Passover together. And so that will be Thursday, March 28th, 7 p.m. And I want to invite you to come and celebrate and rejoice in that with us. But following that celebration, that night, and it was a celebration, the celebration of Passover, Jesus and his disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, they make their way out of the upper room and across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And John writes this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. That Brook Kidron would sit on the east side of the Temple Mount, and they would cross that and make their way up to the Garden of Gethsemane that sets on the side of the Mount of Olives. Many believe that Brook Kidron is what is known as the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Uh, The Shadow Valley, the Death Valley, because of many wars and things that were fought and events that happened in the history of Israel. And they would cross that that night together. John doesn't really give us any details about Jesus' time in the Garden. Mark... Uh, Luke and uh, Matthew all give us additional details recording the Garden of Gethsemane. And personally, I find the garden to be the most fascinating aspect of these final hours leading to the crucifixion. The things that take place in the garden, the change from the celebration of Passover to the soberness of the moment, It's here in the garden that Jesus is urging his disciples to stay awake, to pray with me, and they can't. They're so tired, and they're so weary. Yet Jesus prays with fervency just yards away from the sleeping disciples. It's here that Jesus pleads with the Father, if there is any other way for atonement to be made, let that be known at this moment. Let this cup pass From my hand, Jesus prays. Three times. Three times Jesus prays this prayer. Three times Jesus receives no response. Silence. I do believe that it's here in the garden that Jesus has already begun to bear the weight of our sin. I do believe that that's what we see happening in the garden The Father is already turning away from the Son. Here Jesus prays more fervently than he has ever prayed before in his life. Sweating drops of blood is the way in which Luke describes the fervency of Jesus' prayer. And he's met with silence. Though we do find in the gospel account that the Father sends an angel to minister to Jesus to prepare him for the things that are to come. After the third round of prayer and the ministry of the angel, Jesus courageously stands to his feet and he walks toward the approaching mob with their lanterns and their torches and their weapons. John informs us that Judas knew where Jesus would be. This means Judas also knew what Jesus would be doing there that night, praying. No doubt Judas had accompanied Jesus and the others to this sacred place many times before for the sacred event of prayer, communion with the Father. So Judas not only betrays Jesus with a kiss but he also, in this sacred space, betrays him, knowing what Jesus would be doing there, communing, praying on behalf of his people. Judas is accompanied by soldiers, it says, officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Uh, Under the Roman rule, the the chief priests, the the religious establishment, was able to, to deputize officers, who would uh, be able to arrest people for for minor infractions and things that would happen specifically around the temple. But they know the stakes are high in this event. They know things are at a fever pitch and they know who Jesus is and the things that he's done. And so those officers don't come alone. They come with Roman soldiers who are ready at all costs to do what it takes to keep the peace. I kind of like to think maybe they had heard about Peter and knew his propensity to react quickly and rashly. And so they came prepared potentially for him. As we move through these final hours of Jesus' life, we learn more about him. Isn't it amazing? We learn so much about the character, the compassion of Christ as we consider these events that lead up to the crucifixion and resurrection. Certain attributes are on full display of His His deity, certain attributes of His humanity we see very clearly in these events. And this is why the gospel writers write. They write to us so that we might know Christ, so that we might know Him more and love Him more and serve Him in greater ways. In the next few verses, we consider a few things about our Savior. First, we see this Jesus' courage. Notice verse 4. Knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Knowing all that would happen to him think about that for a moment knowing all that would happen if Jesus walks out of the garden and into the hands of murderers knowing he would be beaten knowing he would be stripped naked Knowing they would rip his beard out, knowing he would be mocked, knowing he would be whipped, knowing nails would be driven through his hands and nails would be driven through his feet, knowing that he would nearly suffocate a thousand times over on the cross, knowing that he would bear the sins. Of humanity, knowing that he would have to drink dry the cup of wrath that you and I filled up, he walked out of the garden. Frederick LeHay writes this He knew what awaited him, and as he went, his steps were firm. What courage! John describes that Jesus initiates the exchange with the mob. He asks the question, who do you seek? And when they answer Jesus of Nazareth, he doesn't say, I think he went that way, or I've never heard of him. But instead he courageously says, I'm he. I'm he. We also see Jesus' power in this moment. Verse 5 reminds us of Judas' presence to begin with. Judas who betrayed him is standing with them. Wow. But note the strange detail that John adds. He says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. What is this all about? Well, I believe, along with many others, that this is about power. In the Greek, what Jesus says is ego me. Literally, I am. What Jesus references here is taken from Exodus chapter 3. Moses is there in the burning bush and he's in conversation and Yahweh has told him, I want you to go back and I want you to tell them to let my people go. And Moses asked the question, who do I, who do I tell them is sending me? And the answer that comes is, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And this isn't Jesus' only instance of using this particular phrase, claiming that that name is also my name. He does it in other places, John chapter 8, for instance. But as Christ speaks of his divine authority, this mob stumbles to the ground, a foreshadowing that every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But what does this awesome show of power prove in the moment? Is Jesus just trying to, to bully himself and bully these individuals? No. What it proves in this moment is that this mob is not powerful enough to seize Jesus. There is no mob large enough or powerful enough in all of the universe to seize the great I am. He goes willingly. He surrenders himself to these men. What courage again. Those final words of his prayer in the garden were nevertheless not what I will but your will be done. Jesus is surrendering himself to the redemptive plan of the Father, and if that means going with these men who will mock him and beat him and crucify him, then he will go. And it's his willingness that leads to the third point, Jesus' love. That Jesus is willing to lay down his life is the proof of his love. Just a few hours before, in the upper room, He made that statement that echoes through time. Greater love has no man than this. That a man would lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what he does. As we consider verses 8 through 11, we see aspects of Jesus' love. Verse 8, his concern and care for the disciples because he instructs the mob, let these men go. I'm surrendering to you. Let these men go. I'm reminded of our our fighter verse from this last week that talks about the, the, the shepherd. The shepherd who cares. The shepherd who holds us in his hand. No one can pluck us from the hand of our good shepherd. We're safe and secure with him. And here Jesus acts as the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. When the wolves come, He doesn't run away. He doesn't flee. He protects His sheep. Let these men go. John points out that this fulfills a promise that Jesus had made earlier from John chapter 6 and verse 39 where Jesus says, and this is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. He takes care of His sheep. Well, Simon Peter has had enough and he pulls out his sword and he goes for the head of one of the high priest's servants. We might think of it this way. Peter loved Jesus enough that he was willing to lay down his life for his friend in this moment as well. He was a fisherman, he was not a swordsman, and so he connects with the right ear of Malchus the high priest's guard lobbing that thing off of his head. And I love I guess we should say in love. Jesus instructs Peter, "Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father's placed in my hand?" I think this incident was foreshadowed back in Matthew 16. Peter acknowledges in that moment, the question comes, who do people say that I am? And Peter boldly says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Powerful moment. Powerful truth. And then Jesus goes on to tell the disciples of how he will be betrayed, how he will be killed, how he will rise again. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, oh, you shouldn't say things like that you remember what Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me if you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And here in John 18, Peter acts out of that same instinct, doesn't he? He wants to protect, but he's not seeing the big picture. He doesn't understand that, that his actions are hindering God's plan of redemption, and Jesus' purpose. And so he's once again rebuked by Jesus in this moment. Jesus needs to drink the cup. And then in another act of brilliant love, Luke tells us that Jesus heals the ear of Malchus. Luke chapter 22 and verse 51. Amy Carmichael, a great missionary to India, once wrote that the last thing the Lord did before his hands were bound was to heal. Because in verse 12 we read that Jesus is arrested, he's bound and taken to the home of Annas. Who's Annas? Who's Caiaphas? These names come to us in these final chapters. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the acting high priest. And Annas is, in his own right, a powerful figure. Because from 6 A.D. to 15 A.D., Annas served as the high priest. Romans didn't like power accumulating over too much time, and so they would depose high priests after so long and replace them with somebody else. And so Pontius Pilate's predecessor, Valerius Gratus, replaced Annas with another high priest. And eventually in 18 AD, Caiaphas would become the high priest, and he would serve in that position until 36 AD. And MacArthur writes quite a bit about Annas and the history and the, uh, the legends of these individuals that we're reading about and how Annas was certainly well known for his greed. It was Annas who would establish those, those bazaars that would set on the outskirts of the temple where they would sell items and make money from the temple taxes and so forth and his greed would drive him to do things that Jesus certainly did not approve of and when Jesus would show his disapproval of those actions and turn over tables, He became enemy number one on Annas' list. They wanted him gone. Well, Jesus' appearance before Annas would begin a series of trials. First before Annas, and then as our text will end today, he'll appear before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and then he will appear again before another group of religious leaders there amongst the Jews before he would then appear before in the official trials of Pilate. Then to Herod, And then back to Pilate once again. So, who is in charge of the Jews? Who's in charge of the fiasco? Is it Annas? Is it Caiaphas? Uh, Most historians believe that, that officially, yes, it is Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the acting high priest. He is the one who has to make the decisions, he's the one who has to sign the documents, he's the one who has to send Jesus before Pilate. But many know that Annas is still pulling the strings, he's the father in law. He's already served as high priest. He wasn't deposed by the Jews. He was deposed by the Romans. And so Annas is the power player in this narrative. Well, for our purposes in this short series, we're going to bypass Peter's denial. Though he does capture so well our fallen nature, doesn't he? One minute he's ready to chop down a bunch of guards for Jesus... And just moments later, I don't know him. He denies. We can all relate, I think, to that kind of erratic faith that we deal with in the day-to-day of our lives, moving from one pole to the other. In verse 19, the questioning begins, and Annas demands to know about Jesus' followers and to know about his teaching. Tell us about these things that you believe. Jesus' response is wisdom when he says, I've spoken openly in the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in temples where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. So why do you ask me? Ask the people who have heard me, ask the people who have gathered what I teach and what I believe what I've said well that answer earns Jesus a punch to the face by one of the temple guards the guard warns Jesus don't mock the high priest this way goodness do we see the irony of this Jesus is the high priest but Jesus isn't simply being defiant in his statement He's here to fulfill the law. He's here to uphold the righteousness that the priests are meant to uphold. And the requirement of the law is that legitimate witnesses are to be brought forth. If there is a cause, then the, the witnesses are to appear and make the accusation before the priests. Annas conveniently and hypocritically is skirting the law that he is supposed to uphold. Well, Annas has heard enough and sends Jesus on to Caiaphas. The other three Gospels give account the details of the mocking, the, the questioning, the false accusations, and the beatings that Jesus endures during these early morning hours of that first Good Friday. Mark chapter 14, Matthew chapter 26, Luke chapter 22 have included these In the bulletin this week as passages that I would encourage you to read along with me as we think about these events that are transpiring. In the various accounts throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus interacting with crowds of people and when the religious leaders and others would would make a move on Jesus to try to capture him, he had this uncanny ability to evade capture, like a toddler trying to get away from a, a swinging arm of a parent who's going to spank or discipline in that moment. They just get away. I think of that most iconic scene for me is in Nazareth where, he, where he's teaching in the synagogue, and, and he gets up and he opens the scroll to Isaiah And he reads of the Messiah to come, and he said, this day, this is fulfilled in your ears. And they do not like that. They actually run him out of town, up the precipice of a cliff there in Nazareth. I've stood on that cliff. And they want to push him off the side. And the scripture says he weaves his way through the crowd unnoticed. He had an ability to elude capture. But here on the side of the Mount of Olives, though he could have done so, he does not disappear into the night. Jesus does not evade the soldiers and the guards and what awaits him. He courageously steps forward holding the cup of wrath in his hand, ready to drink it dry. That's our cup. It's Peter's cup. It's John's cup. But Jesus willingly surrenders himself to save the world. There's a point that I passed over in our text. Introducing Caiaphas, John reminds us in verse 14 that it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. John is referencing something that he talks about earlier in John chapter 11. It will be on the screen. Verse 45, where it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now this event is following the the resurrection of Lazarus. Remember that dynamic story. Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life, and Lazarus, come forth. And Can you imagine how quickly word would spread regarding an event like that that happens just a mile or two away from Jerusalem in Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Well, many heard and they believed. But notice verse forty six. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Imagine that Jesus raised somebody from the dead. We gotta kill them. Ah, okay. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish he did not say this I love this comment by John he did not say this of his own accord but being high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Isn't it amazing that John says that Caiaphas really had no idea that he was speaking prophetically when he made the statement, one man should die for the nation. Why should the whole nation perish when we can just take the life of the one. And now in chapter 18 it's Caiaphas's hatred and animosity towards Jesus that causes him to fulfill his own prophecy regarding the one who would die for the many. Incredible. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Mm. But I don't want to focus on Caiaphas. Let's talk about Jesus the Christ. Leaving the garden, surrendering himself to the high priest guards, Jesus knew there was no turning back like a lamb before his shears. Jesus now takes the role of the Passover lamb. The same sacrificial lamb that he and his friends were celebrating hours before. He now becomes. Jesus the Christ now surrenders his life for sacrifice. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Do you see this? Do you see that all of Scripture anticipates this person? all of Scripture anticipates this moment. From Genesis 3.15 where the heel of the Savior will crush the head of the serpent to Revelation where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will descend. All of Scripture All of Scripture points to this moment. We are compelled as we read these accounts to place our faith in Jesus. To put our trust in Him. And when we say that, when we say that He he died for us, it it means that He died in our place. He died as our substitute. Substitute. He drank the cup of wrath and our sin is filled. He sacrifices His life as our Passover lamb. Have you placed your faith? Have you put your trust in Jesus? If not, friend, what are you waiting for? He is our hope. And if so, worship him today there's nothing greater we could do than to give thanks and praise we're the whole realm of nature mine Isaac Watts wrote that we're a present far too small love so amazing and so divine it demands my soul my life